going to continue our study that we've been in for months and months and months, and we are in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, what happened last week? You guys remember? <laughs> Bathsheba. Okay. So DFP, give me, give me the 30-second recap of chapter 11. What happens? Uh, in the spring, when kings go off to war, there we go. That's right. His idle eyes, he held Bathsheba. Um, how complicit she was isn't clear. I tend to think not at all. And so he takes her, summons her to the palace. Um, they do the dance. She gets pregnant. And he goes through all kinds of steps to try and cover it up. Excellent. That's a pretty good recap right there. Okay, so we'll pause. Do you know what's happening with that video game? Is that Fetz? Can that stop? Do we know? Do we know where it is? Okay. Okay, we're getting there. Okay, so as DFP said, in spring, the time when kings go off to war, right? And that's kind of this very, you know, uh, I was going to say the common is pregnant, but that's a little too apropos. And oh, we're still not making it here. <laughs> Try putting it under your foot and just, yeah, see if that works. That would be good. <laughs> All right. You're banished from the kingdom, henceforth. Okay. Um, but the way, it, the way it all, he's supposed to be doing this and he doesn't, and as it goes off, he ends up betraying not just his marital vows, but his Lord, his, like, his top leadership. I mean, it's, all these things are converged into the singular moment. And it becomes this massive, massive turning point in the life of David. Now, what we saw last week was the sin. We saw the, the event occur, but, what's, but, but there was no comeuppance. There was no judgment. There was no follow-up. And that's what's about to happen right now um, through the vehicle of a guy named Nathan. Okay, now, but before we look at what's going to actually happen, I want to talk about the nature of parables. So when Nathan is the guy and he's going to come to David and he's going to bring correction to David, it's going to be the moment that like some, the rest of this life story is going to get explained. But the vehicle he uses is, did I, did I just say it already? What's the, what's, what is, what is Nathan's choice of what's his verbal tool that he uses a parable okay so let's we're going to pause we're talk about parables a little bit what do you know about parables what's a, what's in the simplest level what's a parable story with an extended it's a, okay nice it's a story and Zach's addition is it's a story with an extended metaphor okay that's good i don't know if you i don't know if you ever thought about it but the nature of a parable is that it is subversive okay so you could, think of a par- you could think of a parable like you'd think of a Trojan horse, okay? What, what's the story? What does a Trojan horse do? Or what did the Trojan horse do? <laughs> what's that? Step behind the wall. That's it. That's a great, that's a, actually a perfect recap, okay? It gets behind the walls, okay? The nature of the Trojan horse is that somebody wheels up, I mean, apparently, if somebody wheels up a giant horse to your gate, you're like, that's amazing. I always wanted a giant wooden horse. Come on in, right? And you let it in. You let in the Trojan horse. But once it's inside the gate and the doors are shut, then what happens? Soldiers jump out. 
the soldiers jump out and it spills out, okay? It is a subversive technique. I want to, there's, there's something I want to get past your walls. I don't want you to defend it. I don't want you to deflect it. I want you to let it in. And then once you've let it in and it's too late for you to do anything about it, the door opens up and the thing spills out, okay? A Trojan horse, a subversive tactic is exactly what Nathan's about to do. And Jesus does it all the time, okay? So think about, watch this story that plays out. Watch Nathan's approach to David. He could have, he could have just knocked on the, on the wall of the gate and said, hey, David, what you did was bad. But if he did that, well, what do you think would have happened if he had done that? David would have been David would have what? David might not have agreed, right? And it might have gone very badly for Nathan, right? And so that we, we have a tendency sometimes just to use this very frontal approach. But Nathan is wise and he's subversive and he's tricky. And he knows how to get his message over the gate, over the wall, before David has a chance to realize what's happening. And that's exactly what he does. So here's the story that he tells. Okay? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, this is Nathan said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. (gasps) And then right there, we don't get to hear the end of the story. Right? That is not a whole story. That's not an entire parable. But the parable, or the fraction of the parable that we get, was so compelling that what does David do? Yeah, he ends it. He's like, okay, I've heard enough. Off with his head, right? He hears enough of the story, and he, just, and he responds. He kind of basically kicks back into the role. He is the king. He is the judge. And he's heard enough that he doesn't even want to wait to hear the end of the story. He just issues a judgment. He issues a verdict, okay? Now, before we go any further, how is that story like David, and how is that story not like David? Okay, what... what how is it like David? From, first, from Nathan's perspective, what was he trying to do? Robin? Well, David himself had everything. Yes. Had much and already had, what, six wives? At least. Yep. And he goes and he takes the one. That's right. So you have a rich man in, 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 you know, in the David and in, um, Uriah story. You've got a rich man. You've got a poor man. You've got a man who has everything he could possibly want. And one who has one that he actually loves. You notice that, right? There's this, the difference here is that this, this particular, it's not like he's going to eat this lamb for dinner, right? But he loves his little ewe lamb. It sleeps in his bed. It's like a pet, right? So you've got a rich man and a poor man. You've got a man who is dismissive of his many possessions and a man who treasures and loves the one that he has. Good. How else? Any other key things that are similarities here with David? Yep. How the poor man seems to fit the, the model of what David used to be. Ah, that's great. Going, yes, that's me, that's me. But then he, as he's being told this story, recognizes, even though this was me, from, rich to, from poor to rich, 
story that I've been awesome this whole time getting here, this isn't making sense in my own conscious because I know that I've been that rich man. Okay, this is... At this point he goes, wait a second. I originally going to be that poor guy, but now you're... Okay, this is such a, this is a, I wish everybody could have heard that. I'm going to restate what, what Chris just said. So as David is hearing this story, it's very likely that he's hearing that Nathan's story and he's writing himself into it because we always do that. Every story that you hear, you imagine, you're, like I'm reading the Harry Potter stories right now, right? Finally, it's been like 20 years and I'm finally reading Harry Potter. And you read it through the, through the eyes of Harry Potter, what would I do if I, I would hate it if I was being bullied by the Dursleys? I would love it if I was like slaying the wicked, right? Like you see it through, through those eyes. And David is almost certainly hearing that story through the eyes of the poor man, of the good guy. Because you always imagine yourself as the protagonist. You always imagine yourself as the good guy. I heard a, I may have shared this with you before, but I, I heard an interview, I forget who the actor was, but there was a character actor who always plays the villain in all of his stories, right? In all the movies that he's been in, he always plays the bad guy. And an inter interviewer asked him once, like, what's the secret? How do you, you know, how are you such a good bad guy in all of the stories? And, the, and the, the actor's response was, I've never played the bad guy. <laughs> do you get it? Darth Vader doesn't think he's the bad guy. Darth Vader thinks he's the good guy. We should get our way. Hitler does not think he's the bad guy. He thinks he's the good guy. We always think we're the good guy. And David is hearing that story. Man, if somebody took my ewe lamb, I would cut their head off, right? We should cut that guy's head off. He, see, he's, he writes himself into the story. He just misplaced his character, right? And when the thing, it's going to flip, we'll see it flip. But that's a really important thing. You do the same. You write yourself into the story and you, ima you always imagine you're always the good guy. Always, okay? Any other similarity between this story and what's happening in real life that Nathan's up to? Anything that you want to throw in? Okay, now, now, how is it not like David? Which is to say, how does David not get, he doesn't see the trap. He doesn't know it's a Trojan horse. So how, why is it, how is it different enough that David fails to catch on. Yeah, Michael? Um, he's, he's preparing this for a traveler rather than it being just for himself. David is obviously taking something for himself. Yes, okay. So he just thinks, he just takes it at face value. It's about a traveler, it's about a sheep. You know, if Nathan had told a story like this, once upon a time there was a king who had seven wives. I think David would have caught on a little bit earlier, right? But he veils it enough that David is able to just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Gina, how else is it different? The thing that dies is the lamb. Uh, good, yeah, the thing that dies is the lamb. The thing that's lost is a lamb. It's not a woman. It's not a wife. And so there's just enough, just enough of a veil around it that David doesn't catch on. Even then, but the owner didn't die. Oh, yep, that's right. Like he would kill the owner. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, and so you might think that it's like, and so, you're, so he kills... Uriah, you know, the, there's, some, there's some mismatched parallels here, right? Just enough. He's artful. Nathan is smart enough to be like, I don't want this thing to smell too suspicious to David because he wants to persuade him. Now, we don't get to hear the end of the story. I'm sure Nathan's comments, if, if David would have been a little more patient, uh, Nathan had more to say after verse 4. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. And at that point, the story stops because David's heard enough. And look what happens. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, 
as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Okay? Why is that statement, why is that judgment particularly pointed? The man who's done this deserves to die. Because David does deserve to die. Now, you don't deserve to die for taking somebody's sheep. Do you know that? This would not be capital offense. I mean, you have to pay back the sheep. You got to get four sheep. There's, you know, if you kill my dog, I don't get to kill you, right? So it's not really true. But in fact, Nathan's like, well, it's truer than you know. Because the real meaning of the story, as we saw last week, David has committed a capital offense. And he has walked through this through this lens of somebody's got to die here. Either me or Uriah, I pick you. So he's right. He's wrong at the local, local uh, at the immediate application. But he's right about the bigger point, the bigger picture. Catherine. One thing I see is different than David is he's never been greedy. He's never, we've never seen him, I don't think, like just not caring for other people. And just like this rich guy, he, yeah. wanted, he just wanted to do it his way. And he's in charge and he can do whatever he wants. But David is living under Yeah, and David and his instinct, his instinct, David's instinct for self-preservation was so strong that he very quickly said, well, we can do this, we can do this. He tried a couple things to try to, you know, forestall the judgment against Uriah. But push comes to shove, at the end of the day, Uriah is going down, right? Okay, now here's the thing that's interesting. We, I talked about this a few weeks ago. Nathan is framing this whole lens, this whole thing through the lens of hospitality, which is so interesting. If we, if we made a list of like, what were the... Back to chapter 11. What were the things that David did wrong? You know, we could, what would you, what would you have listed? What were the, what were the possible sins that David had committed last week? Lying. What is it? Didn't go off to fight, so neglects his, you know, his duties. He's coveting, you know, Uriah's wife Bathsheba. He's, what else? What are the two biggies, the two most obvious things? Adultery and... And murder, okay. But we can, we can come up with these secondary things. We look at like, you know, the king neglects, all that kind of stuff. It would probably have been a long time until we're like, he wasn't very hospitable, right? But that's how Nathan frames it, right? Isn't that interesting? Nathan sees it through the lens of this traveler who comes and you are failing to be thoughtful about the needs of others. He picks on the particular thing of you disadvantaged the one who had something that you wanted. And that was the absence of hospitality, the absence of generosity. Never mind adultery and murder. He doesn't even get to the adultery and murder. He just picks on this thing. But it's enough. That thing is enough. It's tangential, but it's enough that David burns with anger and says, As surely as the man as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And then he says, He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Do you know why he says that? Why David picks like a 4X factor? It is Mosaic Law. Yeah. It's Exodus 21. If you look at Exodus 21, and I don't have the verse in front of me. Um, go to Exodus 21 if you want to see it. Uh, and maybe I can beat you, but maybe not. It's a race, okay? 22, verse Is it 22? Am I wrong? Nah, I was close, you know? So you really beat me. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Gary. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. 
Why is that? Why, if I steal from you, do I owe you 4x back? Why don't we just, like, if I steal it, I got to give it back? Punishment, restitution. Now think about it like this. If I steal from Kroger and they catch me and I have to give it back, what's that going to incentivize? I mean, you might catch me 20% of the time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dominate in that exchange, right? If all i got to do is give it back, then we're not really disincentivizing the behavior because you're not really going to catch me. So it's meant to be, there is supposed to be a pattern that it's worse than it was so that you won't even think about doing it. Fetz? Uh, Zacchaeus promises to give four times back. That's right. Andy, Andy, you're always so good in the Gospels, man. Your mind is just, you must have spent more time reading the Gospels, right? Because you always bring us back there. And when Zacchaeus says, if I've robbed any, remember that, the little dude in the tree? If I've, if I've disadvantaged anyone, I'll pay back for it. He's talking about this. This is the, the rule of restitution. It's four times. And David's like, you should do that. Plus, we should kill him. Those, those two things, right? And, and here's the great line. Uh, what is Nathan's response to David? You are the you are the man. David thought he was the other guy because we always think that we're the other guy. But Nathan's like, dude, I'm, the story was about you. But it's already inside the gate. The horse has already been rolled in. The doors have already been shut. And so when Nathan lets the armies spill out of the Trojan horse, David, there's no, he's got nowhere to go. He can't be like, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, I see you have a point. Right? And he's busted. And instantly, instantly, right there, everything changes for David. Watch what happens. You can see it. It's, just, it's like his face just falls. Right? Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Listen to this list. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Okay, whole bunch of stuff in there. If we were doing this in a small group, we'd slow down and we would kind of unpack this. So let's do a... An, a, a uh, a, a modified version of that. What strikes you? What are the, just make some observations about Nathan's speech. When now he's speaking prophetically, it's no longer a story, it's overt, it's first level. What is he saying? Yeah, DFP? Well, I'm, I'm struck that he never mentions adultery. It's curious, isn't it? You know, I mean, the... <coughs> the big two. The die isn't among the list. So odd, right? Now, it's not because it doesn't matter... But it is curious that that kind of gets lost in this storm of other things. So what, what does get mentioned there? What, what, what replaces that on this priority list of Nathans? Okay, murder for sure, but not only murder, right? Certainly murder. Um, does he, so we say that David, is it fair to say that David killed Uriah? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he used the Ammonites. Yes, but he used the Ammonites, right? So he didn't put his hands around Uriah's throat and choke him out. But that distinction, the, the scriptures don't make that distinction at all. You killed Uriah. What was the weapon of choice? The Ammonites. The sword of the Ammonites, right? But David is wielding the sword of the Ammonites. So no, if, you, if you feel like, well, he didn't really kill him. He just died in battle, and that's what happens. 
Not according to God. He killed him. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you could hire a hitman. You could, there's a lot of ways we could accomplish it, but David, you were the one directing this. So absolutely, completely fair to say that David killed Uriah. Yeah, Gary? Uh, David is accused of despising the word of the Lord. Okay, this is a real, this is strong language. So why, what's going on with that? What does it, what does it mean to despise something? And how is David guilty of that? So you want to you open us on that? What does that mean to despise something? He didn't have any regard for the commandments. That's right. There's this thing that I have said that is true, that you should love, that you've written books about this, David. Your word, I mean, oh, how, how many times can David talk about how much he loves the, the Lord's word over and over and over and over again? He's like, yo, do you though? Because you didn't seem like it. I have told you what to do. And you're like, you know what? No. And in that very act of sin, you are despising him. Okay. Now, I think we've talked about this in this room. My favorite verse on sin, I think the most insightful verse on sin is Jeremiah 2.13. If you don't know this one, this is worth highlighting. Okay, do you have Jeremiah 2.13? Are the fellows smiling at each other? Did we talk about this too much or something? Did you, did you just whisper it? We talked about it one time at Feast, and I didn't say it out loud, and then when you asked the question, and I was like, oh. oh, dang it, I could have had glory. I know, it's such a drag, right? I feel that way all the time. Jeremiah, do you have it in your brain, Jeremiah 2.13? My people have committed two sins against me. They have forsaken me in the spring of living water and have extreme. Yeah, well, that's where Paul's going to take it, but have dug broken cisterns. Broken cisterns they cannot hold. That's right, that's right. Jeremiah 2.13. It's a really insightful thing, and that's what, what Nathan is going after here in this moment. Jeremiah, really, Jeremiah 2.13 is going to help you understand, sadly, yourself. And also your spouse, okay? So stay with that, okay? Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. He doesn't mean we've only sinned twice. That would be lovely if you'd only sinned twice. What he means is that every time you sinned, it was a double step. It's always two things. It is on the one hand, a rejection of God, right? They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. So he comes to you and he offers you living water. He offers you something nourishing and valuable and good for you. And you're like, ah, no, it is, you despise it. You're like, I don't want it. Get it away from me. It's, it's uh, not Jacob. Who's Jacob's brother? Uh, the soup kid. Esau. It's like Esau like despised his birthright. He's like, ah, who cares? I don't really want that. Okay. On the one hand, we're like, I don't want that. And then we go and we dig a mud puddle. I could have your fresh, one second, could be a second, Catherine. We, I could have this fresh water, but I don't want that. In fact, I'm going to dig a mud puddle, this broken cistern, this leaky pot that can't really hold water. And sin is always that, okay? The reason, and we'll just very briefly, the reason that Hannah had the word exchange in her mind is because when Paul describes the, the great, if I, had two, if I had one passage, I'd go Jeremiah 2. If you give me a second one, I'm going to go into Romans 1, into Romans 2, where Paul explains the way sin works. And his key word there is, what, Hannah? Exchange, exchange, exchange. It's that we trade in God for something else. Every time you sin, in fact, just run through the week. Just take a second. What did you do this week? Every time you sinned, you were doing these two things. You were forsaking the Lord, the spring of living water, and you were digging for yourself. You know what? I know what you want me to do, blah, 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 but I don't like, no, I'm going to do it this way instead. I know what you're offering me, but that's going to take too long. This will be faster. I know what you want, but that just sounds like I'm not sure it's going to work, but I'm certain that this will get me at least part of the way, right? It is always an exchange. And what Paul says in Romans 2, Romans 1 and 2, is that we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie, right? We're trading him in. And that is why 
probably the verse that most people know best about sin, which is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short. It's actually a really crummy translation. Fall short means nothing. What the, what the Greek word there is lack. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. So do the arithmetic on this. Why do you lack it? Why don't you possess it or have it? Why? Because you traded it in. Right? That's how this works, okay? So what David is doing is he is despising. I don't want that. I don't need that. Forget that. I don't want that. I got a better idea. Bathsheba's a better idea. You know, I could go do what you asked me to do, but I'm not, ah, stupid idea. Just trust me. I got, I got a better idea than you do. And he goes and he does, and he despises the word of the Lord. And as always happens, when we despise it, we trade it away. We don't value it. We don't want it. We always create a substitute. Nature hates a vacuum, and so do we. Right? I'll take this away. I'll replace it with something else. And then what comes will come. And David's going to see what comes. All right? That's what's happening. There's deep insight into how sin works. Now, Catherine, thank you for your patience. Um, I was thinking of if David, if, if David had not been confronted, that sometimes when we, now I'm just saying, sometimes when we sin like that, it's almost like we have to keep doing it to justify that we did it. Oh, yeah. And, and he would have, but David probably would have been racked with, eventually with so much guilt, but he might, might have had to even keep fighting against that. It was like a downward, <coughs> the enemy trying to bring him down. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so you know, so there's, so the, the principle I think you're getting after here, Catherine, is that all judgment, all judgment, up until the final judgment, is itself a mercy. Because if, in what happens in Romans, once they exchange the truth of God for a lie, what is God's response in that passage? It happens three times. He ex they exchange him for whatever else they want. And what is his response? Do you know this? He gives it over. He gives them over. To give them over is to say, all right, fine, have at it. Knock yourself out. See where this goes. And when God gives you over, which is to say when he fails to bring a corrective judgment in, it's bad, 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 bad. You do not want to be given over. You would be much better off if you were found out and got exposed to light because it interrupts the process, right? If we, if we don't get interrupted in our sin, and you know this, right? If you live this, if your sin doesn't get interrupted, it doesn't stop. It just spins down and spins down. Every time you get caught, you hate. Remember the last time you got caught? Didn't you hate that? It's better to get caught than to have the thing spin out of control and out of control. Because the work you've got to do to like justify it in your own heart, the way things spin out, then you're going to do it again. You're going to do it again. It's just going to grow and it's going to get bigger. You're going to callous your heart and you're distant from the Lord. And the Lord loves David. So he jumps in. He's like, no, right now, boom. We're going to, we're going to shove our hand in the fan immediately. And we're going to stop the whole thing. And all crazy is going to spin out. But it's going to retain this relationship that otherwise would be lost. If we just let you go and go and go and go. Groovy? That, there's a lot happening here. Okay, so let's keep going. So Nathan says to David, you're the man. Um, oh, any, oh, any other insights here from 7 to 10 that you want to pull out? Things you notice about Nathan's little speech? Anything you want to add? Bill, do you want to say that louder? No? He was telling me what was going on. Okay, you got lost. Okay, all right. So, and then look at verse 11. This is what the Lord says. 
Oh, no, but what's, what's the judgment? What's the punishment? What's the, what's the threat of this from Nathan? Yes, that's right. And for how long, Bill? For the rest of your life, okay? Verse 10, now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. It may not be crystal clear what that means, but does anybody think it's good? <laughs> the sword will never depart from your house for the rest of your life. But, but when it says never depart from your house, that might be generational. Yes, okay, so that's true. I think it is chiefly talking about David's life, but if, if what he means is beyond David's life and this line of kings, does that prove to be true? It does. David, you guys, is the high... This is terrible news. The first one is the type of the Messiah that's supposed to lead to the one. How's, how are his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids, how are they going to do at the job? Have you ever considered if all of that disaster that becomes the rest of the history of Judah, does that too find its root in 2 Samuel chapter 11? It might be that it's not just the next 30 years, but the next like 500 years until his house is going to actually lose the throne. And that's coming in about 300 years. It's coming. Yeah, John? It talks about. Oh, wait, first John, then Robin. One of the things I can really see this play out at Oh, big time. The whole, and we'll get there in a, you know, we'll, we're going to move into, for the, I'm telling you, for the rest of the time, it's going to go bad. The Absalom, Absalom, Amnon, Tamar, I don't even call it a love triangle, just disaster, is going to be probably the primary expression of this. It's going to get really, really rough. If you don't know that story, you can read ahead, but we'll, we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. Robin? Well, I was just remembering that when it talks about the sins. be a little louder. Uh, in the Old Testament, it talks about the sins of the father being what, the third and fourth generation? That's right, that's right. And it's gonna, it's gonna play out. And in fact, it's gonna play out immediately. What is the first and most obvious judgment that's gonna fall on David through this? The baby's gonna die. And that's like, wow, that's weird. What about, it's not the baby's fault, right? That's a hard thing. But the baby is gonna die. So here's what it says, verse 11. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. There is an interesting, um, I don't know if it's quite a parallelism, but a correspondence here. David's sin was sexual in nature, and though it's not included in that paragraph, Dan, he doesn't say, hey, you committed adultery. The punishment is sexual in nature. Right? He's saying, you completely ruined this, and so there will be a recompense in your life in the same category of your failing. So it's kind of where he finally gets around to it, but it is strange that it's not listed more explicitly. But I think it's invoked in, in that thing, right? And keep going. Watch this. After um, da, 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 verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's busted. He's got him dead to rights. Nathan knows all. And what I appreciate about David is that the complaint stops, right? He just sees it, he gets it, and he doesn't play any more games. He's just, you got me. And he basically confesses. 
and begins a process of repentance. We're going to watch the way it plays out. But he's got it. He's done. And then, hang on one second, John. And then, after David says it, Nathan replies, The Lord has taken away your sin. It's an interesting line. I want you to remember this. Everything else that's going to happen is under the heading of, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But, because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. I'm going to screw around with your theology in about two minutes, okay? So this is going to be an important paragraph. But first, John. I noticed the difference between David and Saul. When Samuel confronted Saul about not obeying the Lord, Saul tried to make up all sorts of That's right. excuses for himself. David, when he's confronted with something really horrible, David confesses. That's right. David confesses, he acknowledges that there's no more games. Now we've got to deal with it all, but he's not, he's not hiding. And Saul is playing all kinds of silly games. Okay? Now, here's where... Okay, Jennifer. And then David even wrote Psalm 51. Yes, yes. He really did take... He was a man of God, and he did come back to... That's right. And Psalm 51 is a reflection on this whole Bathsheba disaster um, where David in inspired scripture is acknowledging before you and you only I have sinned. Right? Which is a crazy line into this. So yeah. So David's really going to enter into this. He's going to repent. It's going to be genuine. It's going to be real. Right? However. However. And this is where I want you to be able to kind of want to stretch your mind here. Listen to it again. The Lord has taken away your sin. And you might want to be like, phew. All right, let's go golf. <laughs> right? The Lord has taken away your sin. Next line, you're not going to die. Okay, that's good because that's what the consequence was. Next line, this, your, the son born to you will die. Well, hang on a second. Did we take away the sin or did we not take away the sin? Yes. How does that work, right? What are, what are, some, of the fa- what are, what are some of Christians' favorite verses about totality of grace? Gets it as far as the east is. Great. We love that. That's good language, right? He separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. What else? Blessed is man whose sin is not counted against. Yes. Is that also, is that Psalm 51? It's David. Is that 51 or is that something else? Uh, in Romans 4 4, I think he's quoted. Yeah, it's definitely Paul uses it in Romans 4. He's quoting David. I can't remember where it is. Look it up. Tell me. Your footnote will tell you. Okay. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord is not counted against him. Catherine? Lord is faithful and just to forgive us. And oh, good. Great. First John 1, right? See his consequences as cleansing. Yes. There are consequences. Okay, so we're going to come to that word in a second. I think the mother of all, our favorite, is Romans 8 1. You guys have Romans 8 1 in your brain? Yes, there is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, all we could we could make a big big long list. These things are wonderful, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves a gift of God, not a result of works. So I don't want you to boast. We love all that. Problem is, I think we misunderstand those things to say because there's no condemnation, there are also no consequences. Because we're saved by grace, there's nothing expected of us. Because the Lord does not count our transgressions against us, nothing bad will happen when we sin. And all of those conclusions are false. Do you know that? Like, it's absolutely true, 100% true, that if you are hidden in Christ, 
His righteousness is imparted to you. It's this trade we call it the great exchange. This double, it's going to be a second John. Double imputation. My badness to him and his goodness to me. All of that is true. But if you go to some rager and you get drunk and you drive home, you may be forgiven, but you might also hit a car and kill three people. And those consequences don't get magically unwound, right? There are direct consequences to our behavior. And these things here, this child, his death is a consequence. It's not a natural consequence. It is a supernatural consequence. And even though God has just told David, I've taken away your sin, that child's going to die. These are compatible ideas. And we have a tendency to think that if we're forgiven in him, none of the terrible things we've done are going to matter. And it's simply not true. It's just not true. You will stand before him cleansed. You'll be admitted. You'll be raised from the dead at the final thing. He loves you. All those things are true. But it's not, we do not have in Christ a protection from the consequence of our sin. And that may be disappointing news to you, but I'd rather you knew it now than learned it later and concluded wrongly. Here's the thing. You could conclude wrongly that because the consequences have not been taken away, I'm not really forgiven. And you could fail to believe the goodness of his mercy to you. you got to have a theology that can stretch around the reality that there is no condemnation. But there may very well be consequences, right? Even in that, among those consequences, it's probably the case that he's going to mollify those. The consequence should have been that David died, but he doesn't. But there are consequences to be sure, okay? So does your worldview, can you stretch that far? Can you get your head around all of those things? It's a little bit complicated, but these are the, the, both of these things are what the scriptures teach and affirm. Okay, Jennifer and then John. This might be really far off, but you know, they say the wages of sin is death. So David says he's not going to die. You know, David's told he's not going to die. Yeah. Somebody died for him, and that was his son. Yes. Jesus died for us. So there's always a death atoning. I, I don't think that's a stretch at all. And in fact, I think that's, it's, it's not just, is it not a stretch, but it's the pattern of scripture, right? We've, we see it, the first time we ever see it is in the garden. If the, you eat this fruit, you're going to die. Do they die? Eventually they die, but they don't, it actually says the day that you eat it. Dying, you will die. And they don't die. And instead, they get dressed in animal skins. And what is required in order to make animal skins? The death of the animal, right? And the biblical pattern over and over again is that sin equals death, sin equals death, sin equals death. But it doesn't have to be your death. It can be the, the death of another. And so I don't think it's inappropriate to see that there's something emblematic of, of atonement even in the death of this child. Right? All right. Last thing. Ah, it's almost time. Okay. Here's the last thing. Oh, oh John, I'm sorry. I promise you. This is, this is like a situation where a man commits murder, gets caught, gets convicted, after going to prison, accepts the Lord. Um, because he accepted the Lord, ultimately he's not going to face uh, God's judgment before he did. But he's still in prison. That's right. And he still has to serve, uh, serve out the uh, that's right. He's forgiven, but he still has to, you know, live with the consequence of what he's done. That's ex exactly right. That man. Yeah, yeah, that guy was a mess. And maybe, and the thing is, the the thing is, we struggle with those kind of stories. We don't know the reality of somebody's heart. Has he really repented? Maybe he has, but the Lord does. He knows all things. We don't need to worry about being able to see through that. Okay, last thing. I'll just hit this really, really quick because we're out of time. 
David responds strangely to all of this. Do you remember this? There's, a, there's one more like surprise in this. He gets the word that your son is going to die. And so what is David's response? Fast. Fast. Pray. Day after day. Take a look at it. Um, da, 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 da. David, verse 16. Uh, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, went into his house and spent his nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused. He would not eat any food with them. Why is David doing God has said, your son is going to die. And David's like, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to cry to you. Why does David do that? Trying to change God's he is. He's trying to change God's mind. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. David knows the story. He's like, yeah, okay, I get it. I know what you said. But you also said that I would die, and I didn't. And who knows? You are merciful, you're compassionate, you're gracious, and I'm going to appeal to you and appeal to you and appeal to you. It's the same thing. Jonah's message to the Ninevites is like, he doesn't even tell them that God is going to like be merciful. He's like, 40 days and you're destroyed. That's what he hopes is going to happen. But they're like, you know what? Maybe not. And they cover the cows in sackcloth, you know, and they repent. And God relents in sending calamity. And David knows that God is gracious. Remember that we've, we've talked about this. Can we repeat that? Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is gracious, compassionate. He's like, maybe. So let's just see. And so he, he, he fasts and he repents. And all of his friends are like, man, now that the, when the kid finally dies, they're like, well, I don't know. What, David's going to go off the deep end. He couldn't stand it when his kid was sick. He's going to lose his mind when the kid finally has died. And instead, what does David do? He stops. He gets up, gets dressed, takes a shower, shaves, and has something to eat. And they're like, what gives? You were sad when the kid was sick. And now that he's died, you're just like back to business? What's up with that? And what is David's explanation to this? Look at verse 22. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. And I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And David has, he's in this weird place of being able to accept reality. And as soon as reality has asserted itself, the child has died and it's time to move on. But prior to that, he's like, Lord, I don't know. You might, you might relent. And so I'm going to cry out to you. And I think that we, David is getting back into space of being the guy that we want to follow, Right? You may be facing some dreadful situation. And the Lord's call to you is, hey, perhaps, who knows? He is gracious. He is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. So cry out to him. When the situation is over, then the situation is over. And you can live in that. But until then, who knows? Right? Samuel's story is full of the, per- the theology of the perhaps. None of us are smart enough to know what God will do. But he's been, he has revealed what he is like. And we can ask him to be merciful. And he might do that in your life right now. Who knows? He might relent. He might bring a blessing that you don't deserve. He does that all the time. Okay? Good enough for now. We'll stop. Chapter 13 next week. Thanks for coming.